Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Incredible and beautiful, especially when it's based on good, godly stewardship and mission, but that's a byproduct. Surely missions, right? Missions where the orphans are cared for, the houseless are are clothed and sheltered, the widow are supported. Surely that is when we will be our best as a church, right? But I think even that is a byproduct. All the kingdom advancements, the healing, the restoration that we see, all the acts of service and love, people like Martin Luther King Jr., people like Mother Teresa, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Florence Nightingale, you and me, we are all motivated, responding to, acting out of an inner ache or a holy burden or a spoken word from God. We all are driven because God speaks and he motivates us and he leads us. Light Church downtown will be at its best when we have a church that is listening to, tuned into, and obeying the word of God. Everything else is a byproduct. Jesus himself moved into his mission only after he was spoken over by that word. Matthew three seventeen. a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. So Jesus didn't do anything until he heard that voice of love over his life. He didn't move until he was motivated by the love of God, until he heard the affirmation of the Father. So Light Church downtown, we, as we follow Jesus, will do the exact same. We can't go out into the city or continue the mission that's already been here in the city until we hear the affirmation from the Father that we are his sons and daughters that he loves and he's pleased with. Only then can we go out and be conduits of his mission and love in this city. So what does it actually mean to hear God's voice? What does that mean? I think you guys have all heard people say this, right? People who who have said, man, God says, or they always say, thus saith the Lord. You know what I'm saying? You know, when people like say that they're speaking for God, for some reason, it's like King James Version. Why is that? I don't know what that is, but thus saith the Lord, right? We've all seen it used in some ways. Some of you are probably in here and you guys have a trigger as I'm saying that. God wants to speak to you. And you're probably like, oh my gosh, he's gonna set me up for some failure. See, we've all seen it used horribly. We've all heard the preacher say it or that crazy uncle. We all have a crazy uncle, you know? If you don't, you're the crazy uncle. See, we all have the crazy uncle that says like, oh man, God is saying, or we've bypassed someone on the street and they're saying they're speaking for God, but we've just kind of said they're schizophrenic and we walk by. We've all seen it said and done. We've all seen it used wrongly. And so this is what we do when we deconstruct things. We see wrong use, we throw it out and we say it's no use. And oftentimes we've done that with hearing the word of the Lord. As we've said, this has been used wrongly, so we're going to throw it out and say it's no use. But the opposite of wrong use isn't no use, it's right use. And so how do we hear God? How do we step into the gift and honestly the necessity of hearing God's voice in our life? How do we be a church downtown that is motivated, leaning into, obeying God's voice in our lives? And so this, if this quote is right, if this is integral to who we are as followers of Jesus, as people in history to bring God's kingdom forward, how do we hear his voice? That's the purpose of today. So John 10.10, as we just read the reading text, a few things that I said, it highlights, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. He said, I call my sheep by name. My sheep follow me. 
they run from the stranger's voice. He says, I have come that they may have life. He says, my sheep know my voice. Anyone else have selective hearing in here? Yeah? Spouses, I see you nudging your husbands. You know, you're like, yeah, it's you. I, I can't tell stories of my selective hearing because I'll get in trouble again. Um, but there are times when literally I'm like, I'm like, no, I swear I don't remember you. Say, you're right. I know that you're right. You're always right. But for some reason, I just don't remember it, right? We, we do this all the time where we will hear something and it goes in one ear or out the other or it just falls on like the thick skull that we have. It just goes right past. And you know what? I think we do this with God. I think so often we have selective hearing to the voice of God. When he's speaking, we've tuned him out or we're not listening or he says something and we don't want to hear it, so we pass it off. So what does it mean to hear God's voice? So I think we need to understand the Hebrew sense of the word. The ancient Jews would have had a different understanding of what it means to hear. And so Jesus, as he's teaching, um, this is translated in Greek. So the Greek word is akuo, but he was speaking Aramaic and he's speaking to a Hebrew audience. So when he said, my sheep, hear my voice, they would have automatically been hyperlinked to an old ancient prayer that they would have all known and prayed religiously multiple times a day. The prayer is called the Shema. Because the Shema means to hear or to listen. And so Shema was the famous prayer from Deuteronomy 6. And this was the prayer that they would say when they woke up. It was the prayer when they would go to bed. It's the prayer that when they would leave their house or when they'd go to the synagogue, they lived by this prayer. And so Jesus says that my sheep hear my voice. What he's saying is they Shema my voice. And they would have understood what he was saying. See, in our Western culture and mindset, we live in the age of resonance morality, meaning that we feel like we're moral because we resonate with something. When we're like, oh, man, that one really hits. Like, I totally agree with that. And all of a sudden, that's how we gauge where we are on the moral standpoint. Oh, yeah, I'm totally, like, for that, so that, therefore, I'm moral. Or I'm totally against that, therefore, I'm moral. And so we think that our resonance means that we're doing something. Resonance is an action. Resonance isn't obedience. We live in this, res is this resonance morality. We separate listening and action all the time, but not so with God. God is the one who has no lag between his word and his action. He's the one that is no disjointing his voice and his movement. He's the one who says, let there be light, and simultaneously photons come into existence. He's the one that says, let us make, and what lived in his divine imagination is immediately a cosmic reality permeated with intricate beauty and intentionality and harmony. He's the one that when he speaks, things move. He doesn't have this disjointed way, but we say stuff all the time we don't intend on following up on or acting on, right? Like when someone texts you and they say, where are you? And you say, five minutes out, but you're still in your jammies sipping coffee. You're laughing because you've all done it. Benji said, he's like, I'll be there in like 30 minutes this morning. I was like, no, you won't. There's no way, right? We all, or, or this is what we do, is we have, we have deflated our actions to um, just the safety behind our screens. We'll say something behind our screens, and that's us being active. And so what we've done is we've dissociated speaking and action. We have disjointed hearing and obeying, but this word shema used throughout the Old Testament means hearing and listening, but it's also translated just as many times to obey. The word Shema doesn't just mean to hear, it means to obey, to let the words of God that you're hearing plumb so deep, so deep into the core of who you are that it moves you into action. Parents in here, when your kid is doing something and you say, did you hear me? What are you saying? 
is your butt off the couch and are you washing the dishes already, right? Like you're like, did you hear me? Not is did you just hear me? It's did you obey me? Did what I say move you so much to actually do the dishes that I asked you to do? You're not saying, did you hear me? Did you obey me? And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, my sheep hear my voice. Not just that they hear it, but they obey it. They walk in my voice. They walk in my word. They respond. After service, we're going to take some time just to respond to God's voice, to, to his love. But let's not be people who just let God's word hit us in the head and just fall flat. Let's be people who, when we hear God speak, when we hear God move in our hearts, when we hear him through his word, that it moves us into action to respond. And so we need to be people who say, Jesus, your words are life. I'm going to walk in your words. The same things with faith in the Hebrew. You know, it's not just like I have faith, like this mental ascent to something. It's like I'm going to stand on the conviction, put the weight of my life on the conviction that I believe in. So in the Hebrew mindset, there's just no separation between what you believe and how you act, what you say and what you do or what you hear and how you obey. There is nothing. And I think many of us, we have felt God convict us in areas of our life, but instead of responding and cutting it out, we just kind of continue to do that thing. Many of us, when God has placed a dream on your heart, but it seemed a little bit out of our comfort zone, we just pushed it aside and we didn't pursue it. Some of us, we feel like we have a dead end in hearing God's voice. But I think maybe God has spoken to you and you know it. Maybe God has put something on your heart. He's convicted you in a way, or you were hearing a sermon and it stirred you in such a way, but rather than going and being responsive to God's word, we let it fall flat. And what we do in those moments is we're just taking cotton and throwing it in the ears of our heart and saying, God, I don't want to listen to you. So it's not that God's not speaking, but maybe we don't have ears to hear, as Jesus famously says. So if we want to hear God's voice, sometimes we have to go back and obey the previous word he's spoken. And so... We're all a little slow. Can I get an amen? And so Jesus uses this imagery of sheep and shepherd. Now, I don't know too much about sheep. I grew up in Escondido, so we had like dogs and the eventual horse, right? I didn't see very many sheep, but anybody go to the Del Mar Fair? It's like my favorite thing, right? You go to the Del Mar Fair, we always go to the petting zoo section. And so I was over there, and I saw this sheep, and I was like, this is good. This is good. I'm finally going to understand what Jesus was getting at with like the whole sheep shepherd thing. And so I, I was like standing there and I was watching the sheep and I kid you not, for 10 minutes straight, that sheep was just headbutting a pole like this. And just 10 minutes and I was watching that and then it stopped, turned around, scratched its butt on said pole and went right back to hitting its head. And I was like, oh my gosh, I get it. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> I'm the sheep. I'm so dumb, right? This is... And, and that's so true. Sheep are just not that smart, right? And so they have the shepherd who knows how to lead them and how to guide them. And so Jesus uses this imagery they would have fully understood. And it's, it's profound because this is what Jesus is drawing on. When there was a brand new lamb, what the shepherd would do is he would take that brand new lamb and he'd throw it up on, on, on his shoulders and he'd walk around for an entire day just whispering to that shepherd, get, or to that sheep, getting the sheep familiarized with his tone with his scent, with his presence. He would do that not just for a day. He would keep doing it until that lamb was imprinted to his presence and his voice. So this is the intimate imagery that Jesus uses for us to understand what he is like, how he relates to us. But every metaphor always falls short. So if this metaphor is intimate, how much more is the reality? 
He wants us to know his voice. He wants to metaphorically pick us up, put us on his shoulder and imprint his presence, his tone, his scent, like his proximity to us. And so he says, this is how we can know his voice. There's a story in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep, if you're familiar with that. And there's a hundred sheep, 99 are safe, one goes astray. And it says when Jesus, or when the shepherd finds the sheep, what does he do? He picks it up, puts it on his shoulders, and sings its victory all the way back into town. What is he doing? He's re-imprinting his voice, his tone, his presence onto that lost sheep. I think that's so redemptive because we are slow, because we have selective hearing, because we have deaf ears. And yet, Jesus, in this parable and in reality, is the one who continues to pursue us and says, I'm going to continue to re-imprint. I'm going to continue to speak over you. I'm going to continue to pursue you. I'm going to continue to give you my presence. He doesn't stop. He wants us to get acquainted to his voice. So the question is, is this about tuning out all of the other voices or tuning in to the voice of God? Is it about escapism or is it about radical pursuit? See, I think this passage is suggesting that we actually tune into the one voice of God and all the other voices will begin to fall back as white noise. See, I think because many of us, we get caught into the cycle, right, especially in our culture, which is very self-help, self-soothing. Um, it's this culture where we do escape. We lean into escapism in order to find inner peace. Like, if I can just get away from those people, if I can cancel that, if I can get my distance, I can do all these things, then I will have inner peace. We live in an escapist culture. So we kind of think that we'll find peace once we get away from certain things. And there is some validity to that. But I think what Jesus is trying to get to is the reality is that there is always going to be chaos in the world. Jesus is the one who, yes, he got away, he retreated, he heard the God's voice. I'm all for, like, silence and solitude retreats, like, all for it. I wish I could go on one right now, but we're about to have a child. Um, and that's totally not okay to do with a pregnant wife. Um, I wish I could do that, right? Jesus does that. There's so much validity to that. But Jesus is also the one that in the middle of the crowd, there was a woman who touched the hem of his garment. He felt power leave from him, and he immediately knew it. He was present even in the buzz. He's the one that took a little snoozle in the storm. Jesus is the one who doesn't escape, but he leans in. So how do we, like Jesus, not lean into escapism to find peace, but how do we lean into and engage the God who is peace so that in the midst of the chaos, we can be conduits of peace, that we can be non-anxious, non-buzzing when everything else around us is going around? Because escapism doesn't work. It's not realistic and it's not possible. So we're not called to escape the world. We're called to engage the world as conduits of God's peace. So we need to learn how to tune into his voice, to hear the affirmation of the Father, to receive the peace of God, and to carry that into the world around us. When we do this, we become non-anxious, fully integrated, emotionally, spiritually healthy. We can contribute to God's kingdom in a way that we never thought we could before. San Diego will look different if we're in the middle of the buzz of everyone trying to get their success, everyone trying to do whatever hobby they have, everyone trying to take their money and just live their own life with it. In the midst of that kind of buzz, we can be a redemptive person, a kingdom person that brings God's light, love, and redemption into San Diego as it is in heaven when we tune into the voice of God. So we have to hear. It is essential that we hear the words from God, this is my beloved. 
whom I love and with them, with you, I'm well pleased. I think the most telling passage or verse in this passage is when Jesus is speaking to the religious elites and he says in verse 6, Jesus used this figure of speech to them, but they did not understand it. So Jesus was saying, hey, my sheep know my voice. And then it says in the next verse, they didn't understand it. Like, this is so telling. They didn't understand. These are people who would have been studying the words of Yahweh their entire lives. They would have been paying attention to Yahweh's voice, and yet they didn't let his word, they didn't let his character, they didn't let his tone sink deep enough into their soul that they couldn't recognize that this is the word, the voice of God standing in their face. See, apparently, our warped views and expectations of God can deafen our ears and blind our eyes. Sometimes we have warped perceptions of who God is, and that misinforms or becomes the grid and filter with which we hear God or we don't hear God, which is why we need revelation of Jesus to cut through our projections of Jesus. We need Jesus to reveal to us who he is, which is why our starting place is and always needs to be the given word of God, which is scripture. We must start here and allow Jesus to reveal to us who he is so that we can hear him rightly. But if verse 6 is the most telling verse in the passage, I think verse 7 is the most redemptive. And it says, therefore, Jesus said again. They didn't understand his voice. We don't understand his voice. You might be sitting in here this morning and you're like, yeah, I don't know what he sounds like. I come to church. I've been doing this thing. You know, I pray to prayer like I'm all good they probably would have sat in that same camp. They didn't understand his voice, and yet Jesus says again. He continues to speak. He continues to pursue. He continues to imprint himself on us. He never stops speaking. In fact, the cosmos was created by the word of God. If God stopped speaking, we would stop existing. God speaks. Hearing God is not peripheral, it's integral. It is the very purpose for which we were made. I love that quote. And there are so many ways that God speaks. Like I have a list that's up here. I'm not going to go through it all because for one time, two, I'm sweating. And three, they're just multiple sermons, right? So you can, there's, I don't know if the list is going to go up, right? Through Jesus, as a father, the Holy Spirit, scriptures, creation, prophecy, dreams and visions, angelic visitations. God speaks audibly, not very often, through circumstances, gut feelings and senses, or directly into your heart and mind as a still, small voice. You see all of these in scripture. All of these are backed up by the word of God. So these are all ways that God speaks. But again, so many sermons that I could go through right there. My aim this morning for you is not that you'd walk out of here prophesying as you go, though that'd be kind of cool, right? It's not that you would have an angelic visitation, though again, that would be sick. Um, also really scary. Every single time there's an angel in scripture, people like are terrified. But that you would experience freedom personally as you let God imprint himself on I think so many times we don't lean into paying attention to God's voice because we genuinely haven't really aligned with how we've seen it done before. You know, like I, I'm all for the quintessential quiet time. I love it. We have Lecto Divinas in the back, which is a way you can journal, you can read scripture and let scripture speak to you. Let God, the Holy Spirit, speak through scripture to you. There's all of these different ways, but, but maybe you've done that and you're like, I'm just so discouraged. It's not working for me. I'm burnt out. It's like everyone else, they seem so good at it. Maybe you've, you've leaned into a bunch of comparison and you've seen all these other people and like literally as soon as Isaac started strumming the guitar, they're weeping in the back and you're like, not me. 
And we fall into comparison, and so therefore we've kind of been discouraged. And so what I want to do is I want to free you from that this morning. Because I think through God's word, through scripture, we can actually see that God has created us as a creative designer who created all things masterfully. He calls us his poema, his masterpiece. And if God is so creative, there's, there's ob- an obvious way that we would all be different. And so the way that you might relate to God, though God doesn't change, though his word doesn't change, those all are firm, you might relate to him in a different way. I thank God you guys all don't relate to my wife the same way I relate to her. Amen, right? Like, I'm really grateful that we, we relate to people differently. It's not that God changes, but that we change. And so I want this next piece just to be extremely personal and extremely practical. And so in order to get there, we have to look at Genesis. Genesis is the window where God, the divine creator, reveals his character and his intent. And he's creating out of this overflow of Trinitarian love. He's satisfied within himself, within the Trinity, and he overflows beauty and harmony. And after each creative act, he declares, this is good. This is tov, which means harmony, as it should be. But then in Genesis 2, we get a zoomed-in account of God's creative intent for humanity. So Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, living being is the word nephesh, which nephesh quite literally means a soul. We have become a soul. Now, we use the language of soul when we think of floating blue ghosts from the 2020 Disney original. Anybody else like that movie, Soul? It's a good movie. A little off, but it's a good movie, right? We all think that we have a soul that will leave our body, and it will just float away to heaven one day when we die, given that we said yes to Jesus, we got our golden ticket into Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, right, which is like heaven. This is actually not what Scripture teaches about eternity. As this cloud state called heaven where there's probably like, it's boring and there's diaper rashes and harps, right? Like this isn't exactly what it's getting at. The Hebrew scriptures don't define us as a shell that contains the soul that floats away. That's dualism. That is a heresy and something that's been pervaded throughout Western thought. But thankfully, modern day psychology, neuroscience, all this is actually affirming what we see in the early pages of scripture is that we are not separate, disintegrated beings. We're holistic meaning that what we do with our bodies matter for our minds, matter for our emotions. What you do, how you move. This is why when we worship, we posture ourselves. Because the way you move your body, all of that's integrated. This is why fasting is a spiritual practice that's gone way back. Because fasting is is a body prayer. It's a way that you're praying, not just with your mind, since post-enlightenment, we're only like, oh, if I can think it, therefore it really is. But with our bodies, when we posture ourselves through fasting, it's praying to God. And so this is what you see. God stoops down, and from the dust of the ground, right, physical material, he breathes his breath, his ruach, his spirit, which is this spiritual thing, into this physical thing. It combines and it makes the nephesh a soul. The implications are that you don't have a soul. You are a soul. All aspects of who you are. Psychology would say you have physical, you have mental, you have social, you have spiritual, and you have emotional aspects. These are just broad categories, but I think that they're, we're going to look at those in a sec. I think that this is why this is really important. One, again, I said it, what you do with your body matters. It matters to God how we live our lives, what we do with our body. We can't separate the sacred and secular. We can't separate vacation Stevie from church Stevie, though vacation Stevie's a vibe, you know. You can't separate it. What you do on vacation matters for what you do the rest of your life, right? All of those things, we're all integrated. 
Number two, each aspect that make you a soul is a window with which light can shine in and light can shine out. And these are all ways that we can engage God and interact with him to become more like him. Dallas Willard says this, D. Willie, the still small voice or the interior or inner voice, as it is also called, is the most valuable form of individualized communication for God's purposes. God usually addresses individually those who walk with him in a mature personal relationship using this inner voice, proclaiming and showing forth the reality of the kingdom of God as they go. Uh, there's this Brit named Mike Pilavachi, and he says the voice of God is like a butterfly landing on you and then taking off, where you don't know if it's God or indigestion. I love that. God, is that you or the California burrito? I can't tell. Right? It's so subtle, this inner voice, this still small voice. And through scripture, we see that God is actually usually yelling at his enemies, but he's whispering to his friends. When God's yelling, it's usually because something bad's about to happen. But if he's whispering, there was a fire, there's an earthquake, there's all these things, and yet it was in the whisper that we heard God. Why does he whisper? Because through a whisper, you have to lean in. It's intimate. God, did I hear you right? Let me get a little closer. God, did I hear you right? Let me get a little closer. See, God whispers to his friends because it's not about telling you what to do. We're not just army rats. We are his friends. We are his sons and daughters. He wants to be close to us. So God whispers to his friends. So what makes us human? So we have physical, spiritual, intellectual, emotional, and communal. This is all that makes us a soul or a nephesh. And we can all engage with God in any of these areas, right? Every one of us, through physical activity, through um, spiritual, intellectual, social, all of these things are ways that we can engage with God. Um, but there's probably two, one or two, that you like really lean into. And even as you're looking at that list, you're probably like, oh yeah, totally. I found myself, I pray the best when I'm doing that. And so you might be physical, you might be more physically oriented. These are people that they like run marathons, crazy people. Why would you do that, right? Running is, is when you get in trouble in a sport. But these are people who like love running marathons. I was talking to my friend Cordell, and he was like, I went on a prayer run, and next thing I knew, I was six miles deep, and I was just like still talking to God. And I'm like, I don't get you, but good for you, right? <laughs> right? So if this is you, you, you might be here, and you're like, that's me. Like, I, I love going on walks. I actually do love going on hikes. I, I pray the best when I'm moving, when I'm going on a hike and I'm just praying out loud. I actually get away from people because no one wants to see me hiking and talking out loud. They think that I'm crazy. So you might need to get away from people, but going on a hike and praying as you go, maybe surfing a good wave, that could be the most spiritual thing that you could do. And then there's spiritual, right? This is where worship, right? Again, Isaac hit that first chord and you were weeping, right? Or Bible reading, prayer, walking into a chapel or a beautiful sacred space. These might be things that just elevate your soul and you're like, whoa, I am resonating with God. I just, I feel like I'm in his presence right now as I'm, as I'm in this space. You might be intellectual, which means you might be someone who feels God's presence when you sit down with a systematic theology book. And, and when you're reading like just a dense book that, that engages your mind and it talks about God and his character or something like that, you might be like frothing. You're like, this is it. My mind is going. Or when you read, what happens is you feel like your thoughts actually go in a direction and you begin to like start thinking about other things, but it was spurred on because of your intellect. So maybe before you dive into anything else, the most spiritual thing you can do might be opening up a book and letting that stir your 
Maybe you're emotional. Not a bad thing. This is beautiful. You might be someone who would look out over a cliff and as the wind hits your face, and there's a beautiful sunset. You just stare at the beauty and you're just undone in God's presence because it is beautiful. You might be someone when you walked into this room and you felt like this gut sense of loneliness, but you know you're not lonely. Maybe God is actually speaking to you through your emotions about someone else in the room that he wants you to go pray for. Like God will activate your emotions. You might be someone that as you pray for someone, you might feel the emotion that they're feeling. You're very empathetic. And maybe it's social. This is probably more so me. You might be the person who you sit down over coffee with someone and and you're just talking, you're hearing their story, you're talking about how God's moving their life and three hours have gone by and it's almost as if God himself pulled up a chair next to you and you were just buzzing in that conversation. That might be you. Again, that is totally me and I've missed a lot of things that Trisha wished I didn't miss because I was talking to people and I got caught up in the conversation. And so these are different ways that God might be wanting to speak to you. And I, I hope that as you're hearing that, because you, you might be like, man, I was always just trying to sit down. I was trying to like have coffee because everyone always talks about coffee and quiet time. And it's just not working. But maybe for you, you're hearing this, and you're like, oh, I need to go on a walk. Maybe for you, you're like, oh, man, I need to go look at something beautiful. I need to get caught up and raptured in the beauty of something and let that be a window with which I can hear God affirm his love for me. So how does it sound? How does this voice sound? John 10.10, it says, The thief only comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life. How many of you guys know that there are competing voices in your life all the time? Right? You're not successful enough. You're not beautiful enough. You're not intelligent enough. You're not good enough. Or maybe you're lovable, but only if you do blank. You can have joy and satisfaction in your life, but only if you strive hard for it. You're worthy, but once you've accomplished, blank. See, all these other voices are vying for our undivided attention and allegiance. And honestly, the felt experience of everyone in this room, my felt experience is the end result is the reality that we all run up against is that these voices are stealing, killing, and destroying our lives. The fruit of these voices is burnout. It's striving. It's competition. It's brokenness. It's dissatisfaction. It's angst. And it's pain. But the voice of Jesus offers life. So how do we know if it's God speaking? Again, number one, does it align with Scripture? The Holy Spirit won't speak anything contradictory to his very own word. There, if you have an impression that you feel, if there's an internal stir or someone speaking over you, which might have happened before, and it doesn't align with or sound like the voice of God through Scripture, it is not God. You can just let that fade away. Number two, does it sound like Jesus? Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God. He's the exact representation of his nature. So if you want to know what God looks like and sounds like, we can look at Jesus. He came to reveal the love and the glory of the Father that we can be brought into a loving embrace that we were created for. So we can ask the questions, what's Jesus' pace? What's his cadence? What's his tone? What's his passion? Does it align with Jesus? If it's not, it's not God. And so that's why we need to steep ourselves in the life and the lifestyle of Jesus. Because once we do that, if we spend time just flipping through, reading consistently through the Gospels, letting ourselves be immersed in the life of Jesus, we will be able to discern and know and shema God's voice because we'll know what he sounds like. 
will know what he looks like. Jesus is relaxed, he's non-anxious, and he's unhurried. And ultimately, the revelation of God is Jesus hanging on a cross in self-sacrificial display of love. Does it look like Jesus' finished work on the cross? Again, if not, then it's not God. So often, I think we have this distorted view of God, right? He's this absent father. He's this frantic mother. He's this distant or abusive sibling. And like I said, our image of God will shape our experiences because our experiences and narratives begin to shape realities. Narratives create norms. How we think creates the way that we're going to filter through God. And so some of you guys might be like, I'm hearing God, but he's just always angry at me. And I would challenge that. Does it line up with scripture? Or does it line up more so with your experience of a father that you've had? And the reverse effect is let scripture, let God love you and recorrect that experience in your life. Maybe you need to surround yourself with people filled with the spirit who carry the love of the father that can be a corrective experience for you. Because you carry this misguided understanding of who God is. That shapes how we hear God. So we need to immerse ourselves in the true narrative, which is scripture. So the best way that I can describe how God sounds, pretty much this entire sermon is just one point. He sounds like love. God sounds like love. He created out of an overflow of his love that he shared within the Trinitarian community. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. Again, that Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema prayer says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is so important that when Jesus was asked, what's the highest command? If you were to boil down the 613 laws, what would you say in Matthew 22? Jesus says, it's love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. It's the first and the greatest, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. But before we get it twisted and think that this is a self-generated, mustered-up, try-hard kind of love, 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. I think we all this morning, well, I know that we're all created out of an overflow abundance of love. See, God is not a God who created because of lack that needs to bark orders to his little servants. He's not a lonely God who's abusively yelling because we aren't meeting him in his insecurities. He isn't a distant God who just wound things up as a toy that he maybe enjoyed like a toddler, but then got over. The foundation of Christian understanding is that God existed within a harmonious trinity, and he created out of an overflow of perfect, or perfection, joy, life-giving community, and that's why he created so as we've seen and we know and we honestly mimic in our own lives is that when we have pure love, it creates. When we have proper love, it overflows. When we have proper love, it's uncontainable. Like I think of Buddy the Elf, like he can't contain himself. Right? When we're filled with God's love, that's for New York. Or it's the San Diego legend, Ron Burgundy, when he says, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. Right? Like these are, these are the ways that it should express itself. When we are so filled with God's love, it's uncontainable. We all understand this on a human level, how much more God within his trinity, he creates out of an overflow of his love. We are created as a beautiful expression of his love. So I can say with all honesty this morning and with clarity and with confidence, God loves you. 
And I can say that's God's voice. God loves you. This is crucial. If we don't understand this foundational point, then we will feel like we need to answer all of the other voices that are vying for our attention. But if our starting place is from love, then we recognize we don't strive to earn love, but it is our birthright. Again, this is why Jesus started his ministry from God saying, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. I think oftentimes we settle for an off-brand version of this. Oftentimes we, we settle for, for the brokenness and for the quick fix, for the quick hit, for the thing that, that's going to give us the affirmation right away, and we settle for that. And this is the story as old as time. In Genesis 3, if you're familiar with the story, when the first sin took place, it wasn't that they stopped loving, it's that they loved something more than God, and that's what all sin is. It's that we begin to love something else, we get, go to something else to, to give us our love before God. And the most tragic part of that story is when God came in the garden to love his creatures, and he couldn't find them. Where are you? See, this is why we need to recalibrate daily. This is why we need to have consistent tuning of our lives and our soul to return to our first love. Because there are so many things vying for our attention. The reason why so many of us feel like we can't hear the voice of love is because we've been settling for, listening to, tuned into the other voices, and they are out there. And oftentimes, that's not even what we choose. They're done to us, right? Those are the things that are vying for our attention. And so hearing God's voice, and particularly his loving affirmation over our lives, is not peripheral. It is integral to what we do as followers of Jesus. The rest of life in this church needs to flow from that reality. God sounds like love. God loves you. So I'm going to end with this quote. And this is Henry Nouwen. And he says this. At issue here is this question. To whom do I belong, God or the world? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world than to God. A little criticism makes me angry, and a little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirit, and a little success excites me. It takes very little to raise me up or to thrust me down. Often, I am like a small boat in the ocean, completely at the mercy of its waves. The time and energy I spend in keeping some kind of balance or preventing myself from being tipped over and drowning shows that my life is mostly a struggle for survival, not a holy struggle, but an anxious struggle, resulting from the mistaken idea that it is the world that defines me. As long as I keep running around asking, do you love me? Do you really love me? I give all power to the voices of the world and I put myself in bondage because the world is filled with ifs. The world says, yes, I love you if you're good looking, intelligent and wealthy. I love you as long as you have a good education, a good job and good connections. I love you if you produce much, sell much, buy much. There are endless ifs hidden in the world's love. These ifs enslave me since it is impossible to respond adequately to all of them. The world's love is and always will be conditional. As long as I keep looking for my true self in the world of conditional love, I will remain hooked to the world, trying, failing, and trying again. 
It is a world that fosters addictions because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest craving of my heart. The deepest craving of our heart goes back to the fact that we were created in the image of God and the image of a Trinitarian God who overflows with love. We were created to receive love. We were created to take in love and give out love. That is why we were created. And if we don't hear a voice that is affirming us in the love of God as displayed with Jesus on the cross, it's not the Father. We apprentice our lives to Jesus. And so if Jesus didn't make a move until he received that affirmation, then church, we won't either. And this is... This is for us corporately, but it's also for you individually. You cannot live your daily life. We cannot live our daily lives. It is not peripheral, it is integral. That we move as we are filled with his love. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.